The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Well, good morning, everybody. That cliffhanger ending kind of caught me off guard. Sorry, I'm (laughs) struggling to get up here. We're so glad you're here, whether you're here with us right here in the room or whether you're tuning in online. Uh, The scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 23 through 45, 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers." Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I am. The Lord have created it. Woe to him who strives with the one who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, Ask me of things to come. Will you, concern, will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth 
and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present with us this morning. That your presence among us would be convicting and that your presence among us would be transforming and that you would renew us in your image, for your work, in the world, for your glory, and for our good and for the good of our world. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so for thousands of years, humans have looked up in the night sky and seen the moon and thought, huh, that's cool, and then gone to bed. Then in 1961, President John F. Kennedy announces a new mission. Within a decade, we will put a man on the moon. Now, as uh, the author Charles Fishman explains, when President Kennedy says, we're going to put a man on the moon in a decade, this is literally insane. We have no business setting out on this mission. At that point in 1961, Americans had spent a grand total of 15 minutes in space. We didn't have the rockets to go to space. We didn't have the spacesuits to go to space. We didn't have the food to go to space. Not only did we not have any of the stuff, we didn't even know what stuff we would need. Nobody had ever done this. There was no laundry list. There was no checklist. This was insane. And yet, eight years later, NASA, having worked with 400,000 people across 20,000 different companies put a man on the moon. We accomplished the mission and overcame every obstacle. Ever since the beginning of this sermon series, Isaiah has been trying to tell us that God, too, has a mission. A mission every bit and more audacious than that mission to the moon because God's mission is to use a people, his people, to bless and reclaim his world for himself. Everywhere and always throughout the Bible, and not least in Isaiah, that mission is the same. God's mission is to use his people to bless and reclaim his world for himself. We see that in this passage Isaiah is going to start talking about this pagan king named Cyrus that nobody in Isaiah's audience knew very much about. And God's going to say in Isaiah, as we just read, I'm going to use this pagan king Cyrus. Why? For the sake of my people, Israel my chosen. But why is God using this pagan king for the sake of his people? He tells us that too, that all people may know from the rising of the sun and unto the west, that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. That's God's mission, to use his people to reclaim the world for himself. But the focus of our passage this morning is not essentially on describing this mission, the focus of our passage is on the way that our Lord overcomes every obstacle to accomplish that mission. 
Isaiah's been talking for chapter upon chapter about what the mission is. Now Isaiah is shouting and singing and jumping up and down and saying, look at the Lord who overcomes every obstacle to accomplish his mission. God wants us to get a glimpse, an overwhelming glimpse of his glory as the one who overcomes whatever stands in the way of his purpose to use a people to bless and reclaim his world. So this morning, what I want us to do is to be, is to allow Isaiah to dazzle us with this God who is willing and who is able to come over, overcome every obstacle that stands in the way of him using a people, using us to bless and reclaim his world for himself. Two points. First, the Lord overcomes every obstacle we face. The Lord overcomes every obstacle out there that we face. And in Isaiah's day, we've been seeing it all along. We've talked about this again and again. There are basically two obstacles they faced. One was false gods. And the other was oppressive, hostile kings, kingdoms, politicians, and political powers who claims to be backed by those false gods. The two things that the people of God hearing Isaiah talk would have said, oh yeah, these are the obstacles we face, was a world of false gods and a world of hostile political powers who claimed to be backed by those false gods. And we really need to think about how people in the ancient world thought. You see, everybody in Isaiah's day and the nations all around Israel agreed that there were a zillion gods out there, right? The people in the nations around Israel, they had gods under every rock, under every tree, under every podium, behind every curtain. There were gods everywhere. They lived in a world filled with gods. And they lived in a world filled with kings and kingdoms and strongmen and political leaders who all claimed to be backed by these gods. And so how do you make your way in a world filled with gods? Well, you have to figure out which God is strongest. And how do you know which God is strongest? It's really clear. There's a perfectly easy test. Whoever's winning, whichever kingdom is conquering, the God behind them must be the big one. It's very obvious. If your army wins, your God is bigger. If their army wins, their God is bigger. That's the world that Israel lives in. And Israel is this teeny minuscule little kingdom. Like tiny, 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 surrounded by these huge empires. And they're the only people on planet Earth who worship their God. Let's, I just want to give you a couple images to think about this. This is the ancient world at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. That little blue thing down there is the kingdom of Judah. At the best of times, they're a little tiny kingdom, right? By the time we get to our text, this is what's happened. Babylon has become an empire that's taken over essentially all of the known world. That little tiny kingdom that had some autonomy has gotten its rear end kicked by this ginormous empire. And in fact, this empire has not just beaten them, it's taken the vast majority of their citizens in Judah and Jerusalem and captured them and made them walk, next slide, almost a thousand miles over three months to Babylon so they could live as servants in exile. Now imagine that. You live in a world filled with gods, the way you know which god is the biggest one and whoever's winning. And now you're a member of God's people after a three-month trek away from your home and you're living in Babylon, and it's pretty obvious, isn't it? God wants to use us to bless and reclaim his world. 
Not so sure. We're surrounded by gods. They certainly look bigger than ours. And we're surrounded by politicians and kings and overlords, and they're definitely more powerful than we are. What's God going to do about it? Those were the obstacles that Isaiah's audience faced in believing that God could accomplish his mission. How will the Lord respond? Well, in our text, the Lord responds by saying simply this, there is no God but me, and the rest are idols. King Nebuchadnezzar can pull out this map. This next slide shows the map that God lays out on the table. It says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. You claim your God gave you Israel. Let me tell you what my God can do. My God stretches out the heavens like a tent. I, God says, I'm the one who forms light and creates darkness, who brings well-being and calamity. I'm the one who does all these things. There is no one but me. Isaiah 45, 12, I made the earth and created humans on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their starry host. God says, it looks like the king of Babylon and his gods have just conquered the known world. I'm the one who created the universe and everything in it, and I am the only one. And because, God says, I am the one who created the heavens and the earth, I am the only God. Beside me, there is no other. I am also the one, God will say, who holds all history in my hands, who controls every kingdom and every king and every ruler. Chapter after chapter, Isaiah has been telling the people of God a message they did not want to hear, that God could use those oppressive empires to punish his people. Again and again, Isaiah said, I'm going to use Assyria, I'm going to use Babylon, I'm going to discipline you with them. Now God tells his people, it's not just that he can use the nations to punish his people, he can use the nations to save his people. Look at this uh, image again of the ancient world. Babylon in control of everything. In this setting, when these guys look like they run the universe now and forever, world without end, amen, all of a sudden Isaiah comes on the scene and says, no, 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 no. I'm gonna raise up another king named Cyrus from the empire of Persia. He's not even on the map. And although it looks completely implausible to you, he's gonna come in. He's gonna defeat the empire of Babylon. And then, wonder of wonders, this pagan king who does not know me is gonna have an idea that I put in his head to send you back to the promised land and to dwell with me. I am the one, God says, who says of this Persian king Cyrus, he is my shepherd. This pagan king that knows nothing about me, he shall fulfill all my purpose through him. I will say, Jerusalem shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. Think of that. God is making the claim that because there is no other God, he can use any power, any event, any historical circumstance to work his mission of blessing to the world through his people. And Yahweh makes good on those promises. We know this from history. Against the odds, a king from Persia, Cyrus emerges, devastates Babylon, and sends his people back. Who could have foreseen that? Only the one who holds all creation and all history in his hands. And Isaiah points to that one and says, this is our God, the only one. 
And he can overcome every obstacle we face to accomplish his mission. Isaiah told his audience and he tells us that we do not live in a world divvied up among competing spiritual powers and political forces. We do not live in a world where we have to run around making nice with this false god and that false god, this hostile politician, that bad guy political party. We live in a world that is supervised solely by the creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign, the king, the emperor over the universe. And he is committed to calling forth a people to bless and reclaim his world. And he will overcome every obstacle we face to accomplish that mission. The Lord overcomes every obstacle we face. But secondly, the Lord overcomes every obstacle we've embraced. See, the problem that Israel faced wasn't just that they're living in Babylon surrounded by these false gods and political powers that looked nice. The problem Israel faced is they were living in Babylon surrounded by these false gods and false political powers and they decided to side with some of them. The reason why Mike Davis had to spend a whole chapter last week talking about idols was not because the Babylonians were into them, it's because the Israelites got tempted to get into them too. God's people had embraced these false gods and false political powers, they'd bought in. And so the obstacle to God using a people to bless and reclaim his world is not just out there for Isaiah's audience. It's in here. They've embraced these obstacles. They've waved the white flag. What is God going to do about it? Two things. First, the Lord has redeemed Jacob. The Lord has redeemed his people. He is the redeemer. Now, I am well aware that if you grew up in the church like me, redeemer is Christianese that you like, and if you did not grow up in the church, redeemer is Christianese language that you may not get, okay? But we need to know that in Isaiah's day, redemption had a very concrete meaning, and it meant to buy someone out of slavery. Most common reason to end up a slave in the ancient world was debt. So the most, most common way to save a slave was to purchase their freedom, to redeem them. And so what the Lord is saying is you have willingly enslaved yourselves to working for these unjust, oppressive political powers. You have willingly enslaved yourselves to worship these false gods that are nothing, that can do nothing for you. And here's my solution. I will pay the price to bring you liberty. I will buy you out. And that great passage that Mike preached on last week culminates with these words. The Lord has blotted out their transgressions like a cloud and their sins like a mist. The Lord will do what it takes to forgive his people for the obstacles they've embraced. That's the first way God deals with the obstacles that we've embraced. But the second is just as crucial. The Lord turns his people from the sin of idol creation to the job of idol vocation. The Lord promises to turn his people from the sin of idol creation to the job of 
of idle vocation. What do I mean by that? Again, if you look at the passage from last week, if you weren't here, please read it. It's a remarkable passage. But Isaiah is just mocking. He's belittling any pagan who would make an idol and then worship it. And again and again, he refers to these foolish pagans who fashion idols and who worked the wood to create idols out of their strong arm. They fashion and they work. But in our passage, God again and again refers to himself as the one who fashioned his people in the womb and who worked them so that they would be the work of his hands. In other words, God uses the exact same language to describe a foolish pagan making a false god and himself making you and me and his people. What's the point? Idols claim to represent the God in whose image they are created. And the reason, one reason, why they are so deadly is because God has not only given us a a call to worship him, he's given us a job to be a living idol of him. The reason why we don't make idols is because God made us to be idols of the living God. The false statue shows you what Marduk or Asher or pick your pagan deity looks like. But humans made in God's image are designed to show the world what our fashioner, what our creator is like. Idolatry gets in the way of God's mission because our mission is to be the idols who show the world who God is, what life looks like when God dwells in us and inside us, to show the world what God is like. In fact, being the image, being the idol is how God will fulfill his mission. He claims us as a people to bless and reclaim his world. How? By making us images, idols, icons who make the living, invisible God present and encounterable in the world. That's the whole deal. And so if God is committed to this mission to use sinful idol worshipers To bless and reclaim his world, he not only has to forgive them for their sins, he has to restore them to their job. And this is exactly what he promises to do. Shower, O heavens, from above, the Lord says. And let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. The image here is of God pouring out his salvation and deliverance on the earth such that the earth springs up and bears fruit. But again and again in Isaiah, God has used this picture of a fruitful garden, a fruitful land, a fruitful vineyard to describe a people who live with God in their presence and therefore live bearing the fruit of justice and righteousness in God's world. Again and again, God has referred to the fruitful field that he will make his people to be, who live lives saturated with God's presence, and so bearing the fruit of justice and righteousness in the world, particularly for the poor and the oppressed. 
And so when God says, I will pour out my reign of righteousness on the earth and salvation and righteousness will spring up, he is telling us that he is committed to do what it takes to turn us from our idle creation and restore us to our job of idle vocation. God will do what it takes to make his people the field where he is present and powerful and creates a people who bear the fruit of holiness and justice and righteousness. Why? Because God's mission is to use a people to bless and reclaim his world for himself, and he will overcome every obstacle to accomplish it. The obstacles that we face and the obstacles that we embrace. Thus, in Isaiah's day, but so also in ours, Isaiah says, I'm going to use an anointed pagan king named Cyrus to call a people to myself who will use, I will use to bless and restore the world. But the Gospels tell us the story that God used another anointed king, Jesus of Nazareth, God himself in the flesh, for the exact same purpose. God would use this other anointed, King Jesus, to call for himself a people, the church, through whom he would bless and reclaim his world. And King Jesus, God in the flesh, just like God in the Old Testament, promised and enacted the promise and fulfilled the promise to come overcome every obstacle that you and I face and every obstacle that you and I have embraced to being a part of that mission. At the cross, he confronted the obstacles that we face by defeating the false gods, sin, death, the devil. He confronted and overcame the obstacles we face in terms of oppressive religion and oppressive politics when he was crucified as an enemy of the state. But death could not hold him down, but he was raised up on the third day. And at the cross and in the resurrection and by the Spirit, he overcomes the obstacles that we've embraced, offering you and me full forgiveness for all the ways we've worshipped those false gods. And giving us lavishly, freely of his spirit, so that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work, where? In your mortal bodies. So that we might be restored to our vocation, to our job description, to be the images, the idols of the invisible God in the midst of a broken, hurting world. We are in the exact same position in that sense as these folks in Isaiah, and because we live in a scary world filled with freaky, oppressive political powers and false gods, we're just as likely as those people in Isaiah's day to mess it up. Those obstacles that we face and we embrace are just as tempting and more so as they were for those silly people of God way back then. Let's think about that for a minute. Some of us in our world today, in this country in particular, are afraid that the world is changing, leaving them behind. And they are looking to idols to reclaim the security and their place in the world that they've taken for granted. I think that that explains much of what we saw in the Capitol insurrection a few weeks ago. A group of people who feel that their place in the world has been challenged, and so they take whiteness with their Confederate flags and they turn whiteness, a race, into the idol of white supremacy. And they take a secular nation, America, 
And they turn it into an idol of nationalism, and they invade a Capitol building carrying crosses with their Confederate flags and praying to Jesus while occupying the Capitol building. That's what idolatry looks like in our world. That's what happens when we give in to fear. And to those people in that Capitol building, and to any of us whose fears about our place in the world drive us to worship the idols of race or nation, God's message is the exact same as it was to the people of Isaiah. Trust me as the only one who has the power to accomplish the only mission worth participating in. Repent, open your hands, cast down those idols of white supremacy and nationalism from your hearts and seek me and me only as the king of kings and the one who longs to restore you as an image of me in the midst of the world. That's what I think God says to those folks in the Capitol and any of us who are tempted to those same fears. But I bet that you, like me, are tempted in a different direction. I got idols too, driven by different fears. I look at the world that we live in, including a world filled with white people carrying Confederate flags into capitals, and my, this is my fear. This is my real talk fear. I think, well, the mission of God is over. <laughs> the church is done. I guess that's it. I guess the gospel will fail because we sure have made a big mess of it. And out of that fear, just like the folks in the Capitol, I turn to a different set of idols. Did I lose me? Is this me? Okay, I turn to control. I turn to image management. And you know what, frankly, and I'm being honest here, I turn to hate for those people. And I create idols Gods who will deliver the goods for me and control image management and hate. And the message of Isaiah to me is the exact same as the message of the folks in the Capitol. It is trust that God is in control, that he is the one who is responsible for using his church to bless and reclaim the world, that he's got it covered. And so I can repent of my false worship to image management and control and hate for my enemies, even my Christian ones. And I can turn instead and see God as the only emperor over all the earth and the one whose job it is, the one whose promise it's been to turn me and you and God's people into living idols of his presence, even here at this time and in this place. Some of you ain't got either of those idols. Some of you are worried that if you don't have enough money, you won't be able to provide the right kind of life for your kids or the right kind of life for yourselves. Some of you are feeling lonely and you're tempted to turn sex or a relationship or a certain kind of relationship or a new relationship into an idol. Some of you are feeling so out of control and unloved and that you can't measure up and that you can't make it. And so you're turning to something, alcohol, drugs, too much food, not enough food, exercise, too much exercise. You're turning to something that you want to use to give you meaning and purpose and the message is the same to you as the same is to this messed up, pre messed up preacher as the same is to those folks in the Capitol. It's simply this. Trust God. He's the only one who stretched out the heavens like a tent and holds all history in his hands. Repent of the way that you've turned something into a God to get you what you don't think God can deliver on and then seek him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and seek the job description that he has given you to be his living, breathing idol in the midst of a broken world. The steps are the same for all of us. Trust, repent, seek. Trust, repent, seek. Because if we live in a world where God has a mission, 
to use his people to bless and reclaim his world. And if we worship a God who is willing and is able to overcome every obstacle we face and every obstacle we've embraced to accomplish that mission, then trusting, repenting, and seeking is the work that is left to us. It's the only logical response. It is, as Paul puts it, our reasonable act of worship to offer all of who we are to the God whose job it is to ensure that we are a part of that people that he uses to bless and reclaim his world. If you have never met this God, if you've never heard this mission, do not leave here without taking those three steps. Trust in Jesus as the one who can forgive you for your sins and restore you to your job description. Repent of your sins and your idols this morning and then seek his face with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love him and live like him as his image bearer in the world. And if you've been praying those prayers since you were five years old like I have, the message is exactly the same. We draw near, we look at this God, we're dazzled by his glory, who is willing and able to use us for his mission, overcoming every obstacle. And we trust in him, and we repent of our idolatry, and we seek his face. Let's do that together this morning in worship. Jesus, you are the one who created the heavens and the earth. We confess against all appearances to the contrary that you are the one who holds the cosmos in your hands. All human history, every human life is yours. We belong to you and you rule over us and in us and through us. God, I ask that you would draw any who are here who do not know you to yourself and I ask that you would draw all of us into the kind of worship that happens when we are dazzled by your greatness and your power and your goodness and your mercy and your love. Who would choose to bless and reclaim your world and even wilder Jesus choose to use us to do it. We worship you this morning. Amen.